Hi again, and welcome back to Trapped History. I'm Oswin Baker. And I'm Carla Rose Shaughnessy. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes. In today's episode, we want to introduce you to the greatest singer-songwriter you've never heard of. In fact, unsung hero is everything he is and was, the late, great Jackson C. Frank. You're right about that. I have never heard of him. I'm well, you've afraid. heard of Bob Dylan, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, Paul Simon, mm. Art Garfunkel, Fairport Convention. You know, these are all musicians who feature in Jackson's life and in his story. They're all people who look over their shoulder at him, trying to work out what he's up to. Okay. And, uh, and don't forget Elvis Presley. Oh. Uh, I mean, you're, you're right, though. Jackson does only release one album, the eponymous Jackson C. Frank, in 1965, and that's about it. But you'll have heard his songs. Uh, there's a Robert Redford film within it. There's the Joker movie, uh, TV shows, Britannia, Poker Face, Daft Punk have used his work. So he, he's not totally unrecognised. I mean, in fact, it's his influence, uh, which is his lasting legacy. The marquee names of the British folk scene, Bert Jan, Sal Stewart, John Renborn, Sandy Denny, Nick Drake, they all watched, they all listened, they all learnt from, and they built upon Jackson's work. Mm. And so today, to try to understand the man behind the music, how someone seemingly unknown and unseen can be so important, today we're going to be joined by the music writer, journalist and broadcaster, Pete Perfides. Pete, Hello. lovely to have you here. Thank you so much, it's lovely to be here. I mean, wh- when did you first come across Jackson? I'm just trying. I think I would probably have heard other people's versions of "Blues Run the Game," which is sort of his signature song, and uh, I probably would have heard. I think Bert Jansch, uh, probably his version, but quite a few people would do it. I think I would have also heard um, uh, Sandy Denny's version, and uh, almost certainly I would have heard Nick Drake's version. That was all part of that world, and you know, yeah, yeah. rendered glamorous by the fact that Bob Dylan had come over to London in the early '60s and sort of skirted on the peripheries of that world. Yeah, a hugely romantic sort of period in the history of music. But with uh, Jackson's story, it's not just a story of undiscovered genius, is it, Oswin? There's a no, lot of pain no. there, yeah, as well, emotional, physical, mental. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, Carl. I mean, and, and uh, I think that pain is where we should be starting. Jackson's 11 years old and living in Buffalo, New York, when his life changes forever. It's just past 11.20 on the morning of the 31st of March, 1954, and he's in a music class at school. It's not music, though, which changes his life. This is how one of his teachers remembers it. There was a loud noise, very sudden. I guess it was an explosion. The door to the hallway was open at the time, and I suddenly saw smoke pour down the hall. Then the whole hall was in flames. I think it was the children who rushed through the door who were burned most seriously. The school's furnace, which had been working throughout the winter, has quite simply blown up, as Jackson himself later recalls. I don't remember it, but was told that someone managed to throw me out a window and into the snow, and that the snow helped put out the flames that were on my back. It only took half an hour for the annex to burn to the ground. Ten children from that music class died in the building, their bodies found huddled beneath the windows which they couldn't climb out of. Five more would die of their injuries over the next week or so, and 19 more were injured. 
So that's nearly half the class killed. Obviously, as you can expect, there was a massive outpouring of, of grief and anger and subsequent reforms to fire safety across America's school system. But sticking with the pain and feeling the pain, Jackson survived, though no one understood how he did. His girlfriend, Marlene, could only be identified by a swatch of her clothing. Jackson had burns to 58% of his body, and he spent the next nine months in hospital. There would be skin grafts, a metal plate in his head, arthritic pain, fused joints. His right arm is permanently left at a right angle, and a huge scarring. And you can see all of this in Jackson's photo on his album cover. It's absolutely horrific. Mm. Um, and, you know, we're, we're aware now of, of the similar things with Grenfell Fire and, and stuff like that. But, I mean, on, on the personal level, what that does to someone must just be uh, uncalculable. Mm. And we're familiar with PTSD now and survivor's guilt. Jackson's most well-known song, Blues Run the Game, says it all. Living is a gamble, baby, loving's much the same. Wherever I have played Whenever I throw them dice Wherever I have played the blues Have run the game I mean, Jackson's songs, they are suffused with, uh, with this pain. Uh, here come the blues. Uh, yeah, the blues run yeah. the game. You never wanted me. Pain is right at the heart of everything he's singing about, everything that he's experiencing, everything he's communicating to us. Um, is, I mean, is this something? Is this something which is peculiar and something which is special to music? Is something? Is this something which music is able to do for us? Whether it is pain, whether it is joy, you know, of course, that's what it's there for. Um, it's there for anything. Music is there for anything, but it's certainly there there for that. Yeah, I, I'm quite sentimental. Often, I'll sort of go, I'll, I'll listen to really overblown sad songs, you know, that kind of really completely ramp up the melodrama. I'm happy to sort of, if I'm feeling sad, sometimes I'll just put something like, I don't know, like "Memory" by Elaine Page on or something, you know. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And just yeah, like that pushes the button, just you there know, you grandstanding kind of sadness, you know, or sort of something, you know, something by Jim Steinman, or you know, it. Uh, as I get older, I don't, I, I don't care, you know. It can be something like completely naff, or it can be just something like, or like the first Tinder sticks out, anything by Tinder sticks, really. Um, you just take it where you find it. Mm. You know, sometimes you just want to. There's a sort of sweetness to that sadness, you know. I mentioned Elvis at the at the top of the show. Well, uh, the King wrote to Jackson when he was in hospital, and afterwards Jackson and his mum they got in the car and drove to Graceland. They saw Elvis's dad in the front yard, uh, had a word with him, and he took them through to the back of the house, and uh, Jackson met Elvis. It's a photograph. Yeah, and it's, it's a rather lovely photograph. Elvis is in his swimming trunks. He's got a towel around his shoulders. And Jackson, he's got a quiff like his like mm, his hero, yeah. standing in front of a jukebox, shyly, very excited, but also hiding his scarred and burnt hand under his uh, left arm. One of Jackson's friends describes his physical appearance. He seemed sort of crooked and oddly bent in his posture. 
His upper body leaned a bit to one side, his head cocked naturally to the other. A leg did not seem to quite straighten all the way. One arm was stiff and did not seem to flex beyond the right angle. In short, he gave the impression of being a little crumpled up, like one of the wrecks in the yard at the body shop next door. And yet, the entire effect was at once absolutely attractive, even irresistible, with the warm magnetic glow of some kind of aura about him. There is definitely something about Jackson. People are just drawn to him. And even when he flunks out of college, no one really seems to care. Seemingly effortlessly, he learns to play guitar with his injuries. He appears open mic nights in Buffalo, and he forms a trio, the Grosvenor Singers. And then, and then, it is, it's ten years after the fire, and the insurance payouts kick in. Uh, On Jackson's 21st birthday, in March 1964... He gets a payout of of $100,000, of which he eventually will be getting $80,000. And that's $800,000 in today's money. It's massive. And it burns a hole in his pocket, as well as his conscience. I mean, we're back to pain again, really, aren't we? Survivor's guilt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Bruce doesn't get it. Werner doesn't get this money. Michael, Elizabeth, John, Patricia, Barbara, Blaine, or Reba. Marlene doesn't get this money, nor any of the other five who died the following week. There's another Marlene, another Patricia, Donald, Suzanne, uh, or George. I mean, you said uh, survivor's guilt. It's, mm. it's this feeling of shame. I guess PTSD wasn't... Did the term even exist back Probably in not. those days? And so and we see it time and time again. I'm sure anecdotally we all know sort of cases where you know something terrible terribly sort of turbulent or shocking happened in someone's childhood and maybe they just don't think about it very much in the in the few years immediately after it happened but you just somehow it just catches up on you and you sort of realize you know sort of how much it shaped you I think that that seems to be something that happens with with Jackson because there doesn't seem to be any sort of let up he doesn't seem to be any sort of happy you know in a way you know looking at the timeline of his life in the 60s it's almost like he's trying to spend it as fast as he can so that he just doesn't have it anymore i don't know if that's a conscious or subconscious desire it was like he almost like he doesn't feel that he's worth he's worthy of that sort of payout and and in a sense you would feel that you know if you were if you'd survived to be to survive to have that sort of luck as it were to survive and then to be given 80 grand on top of it well that's kind of a bit screwed up in i can sort of see how you know you might rationalize it as being a bit of a screwed up sort of mm. turn mm. of events and and so he kind of he bought cars, didn't he? He sort of was obsessed with buying cars. Yeah, there were he loved Jaguars, um, but there were Rolls Royces, there were Daimlers. He got everything he could lay his hands on. Mm. His mum had big plans for the money as well. Yeah. If it had been properly invested, then he would have been a millionaire by his thirty fourth birthday. But Jackson had other plans, and his money ran out by the time he was twenty four. I think. Yeah. So just to sort of get get him across across the Atlantic, <laughs> um, he books himself a passage to England boarding the Queen Elizabeth Ocean Liner in February 1965. Oddly, he only seems to be doing this because his girlfriend is trying to run away from him and he literally follows her onto the ship. And so we're, he, his, it's this very complex 
emotional world he's in where he's running away but running towards something he's chasing and leaving all at the same time he's trying to get away from buffalo from the judgments of his family the school community but he's also he's also running towards something trying to get some connection whether it's with his girlfriend kathy or whether it's with the destination of the liner and in fact later jackson would write that england and i quote taught me the value of remaining open to all things So that's where we're off to next, Swinging London. And I think as our guide there, it's time to introduce today's guest. Uh, You've heard him already, but we're delighted to bring on Pete Perfides, whose glorious book, Broken Greek, took me back to my childhood and the Proustian, Madeline-like memories of music. Pete, it's lovely to meet you. Thanks so much. Lovely to be here. I think you have some sublime writing in here. The thing that one of the things which really got me. Well, firstly, you talk about Jimmy Osmond as the tiny, twinkle-eyed Satan of kid pop. <laughs> that was absolutely perfect. And Kiki D with the benign gaze of a skilled childminder. Yeah, that yeah. Was great. <laughs> thank you. Um, but the one, the one description which really got me, which and, and I had, it's Cliff Richard in the it's sort of late seventies, early eighties, oh, sort know, of yeah. wired for sound. Yeah. And you write of him coming on top of the pops and his dance. And you oh. say his dance is that of a man carefully emerging through a foggy clearing at night in a glade where a puma has been reportedly sighted. <laughs> <laughs> and you just, you can see him. That's what he's doing. That, yeah, that's just how it seemed to me. You know, yeah. I, I was, all I had to do was just like put in words what my memory was telling me. Yeah, that was one of the easier days writing. <laughs> Okay, a slightly convoluted route back to Jackson. Yeah. Broken Greek, you've got this wonderful description in here of your first introduction to pot noodles. When you destroy a family Sunday lunch with your pot noodles and you end with the payoff line, the noodle and the damage done, which references a a Neil Young song, The Needle and the Damage Done. Yeah. Now, Laura Marling covered that song for Third Man Records. I know you've got your own uh, record label, Needle Mythology. Yeah. Yeah. But it was the B side. What do you think Laura Marling's A side was? So the B side was the needle and the damage had done. Yeah. And the A side. Oh, was it? Oh, it's blues on the game. It's yeah, blues yeah, on the yeah, game. Yeah, Jackson's yeah. blues on the game. So yeah. So very good. Shows how deep this thing gets. <laughs> uh, uh, so we're back with Jackson, back in London, 1965. Can you sort of help us understand why Jackson? but also Bob Dylan and Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, why they came across, why they were drawn to London at this time. Going back to the early 60s Soho, where, you know, espresso machines had just arrived and everyone was staying up all night anyway, and, you know, coffee was more the thing than alcohol. <laughs> and everyone, everyone, you know, had a sort of Jack Kerouac book in their back pocket or whatever. And, you know, it seems kind of naive in a way, that uh, sort of being enthralled to these kind of boho influences. But also, I love the fact that this was a scene full of people that descended upon London and just kind of reinvented themselves and, you know, just took off in this kind of fantasy, romantic sort of world that they kind of were part this shared world that they were participants in and god it must have been exciting when americans came and joined in people like paul simon and jackson c frank god that must have been you know you must have thought you were doing something right if these people were flying over here to be part of it (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what they'd heard about what was happening in london um first of all you know london had 
history and they they were self-styled folk musicians um, so i think they probably you know certainly bob dylan you know knew straight away where he was headed and i think uh, it was martin carthy who um who was his sort of tour guide around london early on you know and he infamously turned up at ewan mccall's singers club and ewan mccall separated a very sort of um uptight kind of proper version of folk where he he had this regular folk night him and his wife at the time peggy seager where they'd invite people to do floor spots and they had to sing and there were lots of rules that they had to follow they had to do they could only do traditional songs they 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 shouldn't accompany themselves on guitar it had to be completely sort of a cappella, as it were and Bob, you know, Bob Dylan reputedly turned up and, you know, Ewan McCall wouldn't have known what to make of him either. These Americans must seem very, very exotic to the British singers that were sort of alighting on the scene in Soho. Al Stewart was there, Roy, Roy you know, people were just descending upon, people with guitars were descending upon London and Bob Dylan was definitely a catalyst for that. But also people like, you know, D- David Graham were hugely influential, you know, really sort of stretching the genre in all sorts of interesting places and suggesting ways in which it could go. It was a really sort of vibrant... Um, fertile scene and so when jackson c frank came over at the end of 1964 it would have been sort of in full flow and he would have been he would have been a very curious and fascinating character to a lot of the people who were already there there's this amazing woman and i hope i've got her name right judith peep and she sort of keeps an open house for folkies beatniks bohemians and things like that and paul simon's living there al stewart's living there and that's where jackson finds his place and he lives there with his girlfriend sandy denny for a bit and and one day as jackson recalls paul simon has an idea paul was a very nice guy he'd get high on hashish a great deal and laugh a lot he had plans for me paul said i'd like to get you a record Art said the same thing, and they both thought they could get me a record in town. And that's exactly what they did, at Levi's recording studio on New Bond Street, where Dylan had recorded a few months earlier, and where Paul Simon had, in fact, a few weeks before, recorded his songbook. If you're Neil Young, you can just kind of wander into a studio and cough out another album and know that you'll be ready to do it again in six months' time. But um, clearly it was an ordeal for Jackson to, to do it once. He had to sort of, they had to set up screens so that Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel couldn't actually see him singing. There were kind of long gaps between the recordings of songs so that he could psych himself up. It's, it's amazing, you know. The more, the more I listen to that album, the more kind of sort of miraculous it is that it's kind of there and you feel like you're in the room with him, which is, again, testament to Paul Simon's incredible production as well as the the quality of the songs. The recording is done and dusted in a few hours, uh, just ten songs with a running time of barely half an hour. Paul Simon describes the opener, Blues Run the Game, as a jewel of a song, and Bert Janch, the godfather of the British folk revival, agrees. Jackson was an extraordinary guy. He only produced one album, but it had such an effect on singer-songwriters and the way they actually wrote songs. The whole album is actually beautiful. Because it was all recorded either in one or two sort of brief sessions, you're just there in the room. It's it's sort of a moment in the evolution in that 
in the fast evolution of that whole sort of milieu, you just hear this sort of electrifying talent that is just announcing itself, not entirely aware of its own enormity, just kind of revealing itself in that moment. The debt we owe to Paul Simon for for making this session happen is mm. is immeasurable. And I mean, that Paul Simon connection is so huge. Mm. He pays £50 for the studio. And remember, Jackson still had lots of money of his own. Um, he produces the session. He gets Columbia to release it. And there's a really big why here. I mean, did he see something mercurial in Jackson, something that needed to be bottled before it was too late? Or did he see him as a rival or an influence? Well, one thing we know about Paul Simon around this time is that he was fiercely competitive and he was really trying to get on. He, you know, he famously sort of nicked the arrangement for Scarborough Fair off Martin Carthy and wouldn't credit him for decades. So it's nice to see that this side to him ex- existed. Um, I don't necessarily think Paul Simon is like this anymore, by the way. Um, he's certainly gone out of his way to make amends to Martin Carthy and give belatedly give credit to where it's due to all sorts of people but yeah no he, so he's um it is curious because you know he came over here looking looking for his break you know much like jackson was so maybe he saw something of that his own story in in jackson but um yeah it's a curious one um jackson must have been charismatic i mean you don't sort yeah. of try and help someone in that way if you would because it's not like he he didn't have the money. So he clearly made an impression. I don't think you can underestimate how many doors Blues Run the Game opened. I mean, Blues Run the Game was a song, it was just a song that you had to know. And you can see that. You can see just how many, you know, the versions that exist of it, the, the versions we know about, there would have been more versions that people would have just recorded live on the scene. These songs spread like wildfire. So I think it became a set text within weeks of Jackson's arrival in this country. People, people really seem to love it. I mean, I remember, you know, I befriended John Renborn in the latter years of his life, and he'd often talk about him. Um, just, you know, very, he didn't have a bad word to say about him. Everyone, everyone was just fascinated by him. And I think a lot of that fascination is to do with the fact that he just landed there, landed in, the, in Britain with this song that, that just beguiled everyone it, because it was just so pure it was just so succinct I, I, you know where do you begin um what i love about blues run the game is that you know he doesn't make himself a lot of songwriters would have maybe tried to make themselves sound more impoverished than he was he doesn't he's in a position to order room service you know and yet that does not diminish the impact of the song in a way it makes it more intriguing like you know what's he doing there living is a gamble loving is much the same you're just a hostage to greater forces and to a degree he would have felt like this probably because of the terrible things that had happened to him as a child you know you you're you have you might think you have agency but you don't so you may as well be a rolling stone you know <laughs> what does it matter what does anything matter yeah and um because the blues are still the blues. And that that's kind of... I, I love the fact that... I think it's actually important that, that you, you, know, you get that detail about room service because it's just... Nothing can, when you're, nothing can ultimately diminish that sort of 
sadness. Like nothing matters to him. Um, uh, it, weirdly enough, it gives it more authenticity rather than less. And I think that's down to just the spirit in which he, he wrote the song. In what terms it, of what? authenticity, I, I, mean, I, I always think of the blues as an African-American musical yeah. genre. And yet we've got this white American singing quite a few songs with blues in the title and, and blues sort of suffused through the lyrics and the music. Does that matter? I listen to it the way I listen to all music, which is, am I having an emotion? Whether or not an emotion happens is not contingent on the, the background or the bank account balance of the person I'm listening to. It just either happens or it doesn't happen. And, all, and when I review a, a record, I always try and say to... The rule I set myself is, just imagine you're listening to this in 30 years' time. So you forget all about what the kind of arguments around anything are right now. Just imagine listening to this record in 30 years' time. What are people going to say about it in 30 years' time? And all the evanescent kind of fleeting kind of noise around anything that's happening when a record is released, when that disappears that what you've got left is, I think, the truth of sort of what you're hearing. Yeah, I mean, and, and on that note, I think it's only right and proper that we take a listen to Blues Run the Game itself. I mean, here are just a few of the greats who have covered the song down the years. You're going to be listening to Sandy Denny, Simon and Garfunkel, Eddie Reader, John Renborn, Nick Drake, Laura Marling, Bert Jantz, Counting Crows, oh, and of course... Jackson himself. Catch a boat to England, baby, maybe to Spain. Wherever I have gone, wherever I've been and gone, wherever I have gone, the blues run the game. Go bring me whiskey, baby. Bring me gin Me and room service Me and room service now Me and room service We're living We're living a life of sin When I'm not drinking, baby You are on my mind When I'm not sleeping, honey I ain't sleeping, mama, when I ain't sleeping, you know you'll find me crying. Maybe tomorrow, honey, someplace down the line, I'll wake up older, so much older, baby, wake up older, darling, maybe stop my crying. Is a gamble, baby. Loving's much the same. Wherever I played, wherever I throw those dice, wherever I played the blues, run the game. One of the things which happens when, when the album is released, it's released in December 1965, hardly sells anything. But in that same month, the Beatles bring out Rubber Soul, 
which let's face it sort of blows blows every, everyone away but it can sort of legitimately be said to also blow open the doors for sort of folk rock and sort of the beginning of some sort of psychedelic take on the world and Roy Harper one of Jackson's British folky friends who would then write the song my friend about mm-hmm. about Jackson he said of rubber soul they'd come onto my turf and they were kings of it overnight we'd all been outflanked um, and so you do also have this other spectre of, we're talking Dylan and um, Paul Simon and yeah. Jackson, but you have the Beatles. Yeah. And they, they encroached into it further, obviously, you know, when they actually, when when Donovan befriended them and taught them how to do the kind of, that kind of Burt Jan style finger-picking on the White Album. So you've got, suddenly you've got John Lennon doing things like Julia and, you know, Paul doing Blackbird. They're so good, they can just do anything they want. Anything they put their minds to, they can just completely do it as well as the people that they've just learned it off. <laughs> it's just incredible. So the burning question for me, I guess, is why only one album? What happened to Jackson? People started noticing that something wasn't right. This is Al Stewart. He proceeded to fall apart before our eyes. His style that everyone loved was melancholy, but immediately thereafter he started doing things that were completely impenetrable. They were basically about psychological angst played at full volume with lots of thrashing. There was one review that said he belonged on a psychiatrist's couch. And in many ways he did. Although he vehemently denied it, all his life. There is paranoia and there is schizophrenia there with which Jackson is eventually diagnosed. He spends time in mental health units in the UK and then back in the US. But Jackson does try though. He tries to be quote unquote normal. I mean within certain parameters of late 60s East Coast hippiedom normal. Yes. He settles back down in America, in Woodstock, of course, in 1967. And he's actually part of the Woodstock Sounds Festival, billed as the original Woodstock in 67 and 68, both organising and performing. And the Soft Machine was one of the acts he brought over from Britain. And he gets a job on the Woodstock Week newspaper. He marries. His wife, Elaine, is actually Edie Sedgwick's cousin, the Warhol superstar. He opens a clothes shop with a $3,000 loan from, yes, you guessed it, Paul Simon. You know, normal is as normal does. I wouldn't mind having a three thousand dollar loan from Paul Simon, <laughs> yeah. but you know, but the key thing is, if he's getting a loan from Paul Simon, the money is gone, yeah. um, and, and it's almost as if Jackson has finally given himself permission or been commissioned to let go. There's something which has been held within him for so long, while he has had this blood money. Um, which he can finally let rip, and the decline is fast and furious. Uh, he sleeps around, he runs around literally, he's running naked through the streets of Woodstock, brandishing a six-foot sword. Um, he's arrested, he hears voices, he's a wreck. Al Stewart again remembers. The first time I realised there was something distinctly wrong was when I went to Woodstock in 1970. He had real long hair and was hostile and paranoid. And then in 1971, Art Garfunkel, uh, who had just split up with Paul Simon and he's looking for new songs for a, for a potential solo album, he turns up in Woodstock to see if Jackson has any songs. And I suppose this, is, this may be one of the things about the attraction that Paul Simon also felt for Jackson, that they, rec- they realised and recognised that here was 
a songwriter. He was someone who could give them things. But Art Garfunkel was so frightened of what he sees that he just jumps back in his car and drives away and never sees Jackson again. Elaine, too, Jackson's wife, she has had enough and she leaves him, taking their daughter with her. He was incredibly talented. And it is a great sadness that when one is very young, one thinks that you can change people or give them motivation or inspiration. But apparently, he was much, much more intent on being destructive. He couldn't seem to find something to give his life meaning. And I think we're, we're again, back to that question of pain and, and Jackson is in and out of hospital and psychiatric wards. He stops his meds, he sleeps on the streets. He's sectioned. It's a vicious cycle. But I suppose sort of coming back to something that you were saying earlier, Carla, that people are people are on the whole good and they are nice to him. They are kind to Jackson. There's one young neighbour um, who would later recall. Despite his strangeness, the whole neighbourhood cut him a lot of slack. I don't even remember people speaking negatively about him or telling kids to stay away from him. The adults would say something along the lines of, he was in the Cleveland Fire, you know, in the music room, and they all knew what that meant, and that was enough to explain everything about him. The fire's still there, though, isn't it? It yeah. might have burnt through his money, but it is still burning inside of Jackson. And as a case in point, down the years, he does get into studios, and he does record a few songs, mm. and he even records a second album in the mid-'70s, but he never goes back for the tapes. He never goes back for the tapes. And one of those songs is called Marlene. You remember Marlene, his girlfriend who died in the fire? Yeah. Well, here are some of the lines. The gymnasium floor, the brass-bound door, the jungle bird, the jungle bird that she showed me. Her love was so clean. To tell the truth, Marlene, the sound of your tambourine still haunts me. My friends in the bars, hell, they only see the scars, and they do not give a damn. They do not give a damn. It's just, it, it, it is, it shows to me how much you know, this is still front and centre of Jackson's life. I mean, Pete, we're back to pain and aching sadness, aren't we? I just think, you know, um, <clears throat> what that makes me reminds me of it is it kind of confirms to me in a way i sort of think that you are in the first 10 years of your life first 10 11 12 13 14 years of your life you're sort of 80 percent made really i think that's you, you know most of the heavy lifting most of the building work you sort of done you know and as you get older and certainly you know what i found even when i was writing my book what i found is more of what I am is in those those years than anything that has happened since. I just don't think we can get away from that. I think we are we we you know we can kind of come to an accommodation with it. You know, sometimes depending you know with therapy or whatever. But we are we are essentially that person. We're sort of made really in the first you know dozen years of our lives, and the experiences that that mould us in that in that time. You know, listening to that, you know, those lines from Marlene is not about erasing the emotional sort of baggage of what happens in the, that time. It's it's just about coming to an accommodation with it. I think that's by and large what you what you have to do in life. Mm. 
or at least what you'd have to try and do in life. And I think that's, insofar as I can see, I think that's true of Jackson C. Frank. It doesn't get better. I'm reminded of the film Fisher King, you know, with uh, Robin Williams on the streets of New York trying to get back to the life that he'd had. One day, Jackson walks out of Woodstock in the early 80s and just disappears. And he goes to New York City because he wants to find his old friend. We're back to Paul Simon again. Um, he thinks that Paul Simon owns the copyrights to his songs and might be able to give him some royalty checks. And it turns out that Jackson, I mean, he did know where Paul Simon lived and worked. He he had the address. I don't know why, though. He He never goes there. He never writes. He never phones. And instead, he spends the best part of a decade living on the streets of New York, begging, panhandling, bouncing in and out of psychiatric units and homeless shelters. I mean, he, he's in his 40s at this point, but he's lost most of his teeth. He, he will lose an eye. And he looks like he's in his late 60s. It's, it's amazing, this idea. In, you know, to think of Jackson in 1984 trying to find Paul Simon who at that point would have just been at the beginning, I think he would have started work on the album that became Graceland, which to me feels like, still feels like a contemporary album. It feels like it's the album which sort of formalised Paul Simon's passage into that kind of upper echelon of all time, songwriting greats. So this kind of intersection between Paul Simon making one relatively late and successful bid for top-notch A-list, you know, music superstar status. And Jackson, who's homeless, has lost everything, trying to just kind of catch him on his way up and just not even kind of finding him. It's just really poignant, isn't it? And then something rather amazing happens. This man, a fan called Jim Abbott, finds Jackson and he starts to look after him. He gets him out of the city and back to Woodstock. He finds him places to live, nice places with good people. Jim helps Jackson with his meds. He helps him clean up. He gets him a haircut. He even gets him some dentures. (laughs) And Jackson, the Jackson of 1965, starts re-emerging. He does some open mics. He does an interview or two. He records again and his album is re-released. And then... And then Paul Simon sends back Jackson's copyright. It turns out Jackson was right all along. At some point, maybe as collateral for the clothes shop loan, he'd given Paul Simon the rights to his songs. And Paul sends them back and the debt is cancelled. Jackson is delighted when he receives a cheque for nearly $1,000. He's living in his own flat for a while until it becomes too much. Jackson C. Frank moves into a nursing home where he dies in 1999, the day after his 56th birthday. Despite Jim Abbott finding Jackson, there's no sugar man moment. He isn't rediscovered and and fated in a way that perhaps he deserved. But perhaps Jackson didn't feel that he deserved that anyway. No, I think there's a kind of issue of entitlement there. You know, what what did Jackson, you know, given the terrible things that had happened to him, what did he feel he was entitled to really? I think maybe at some level he felt that he was barely entitled to, to survive. There's that kind of, you can hear that conflict in his music that just somehow 
he just doesn't really deserve the kind of contentment and fulfilment that someone without that history would would not feel encumbered by who would feel perfectly entitled to strive for but for someone like jack to see frank it was just never really going to be that easy i think it's it's only right to close with uh, something which which jackson wrote himself uh, it's a rather lovely description of the writing process i think it sort of tells us hopefully a little bit about what it was like for him here you are when i was younger i had all the material in a little pocket that just happened to be opened up and there it was whatever it was now i start on several skeletons and flush them out afterwards meantime the ideas simply keep pouring around me till i am dazed and unable to keep up with them, and an exhaustion of sorts sets in. I prefer the old way, although it's not so prolific, and indeed provides little proof or substantiation that I'm in any way gifted. I've gotten a lot of praise from a lot of people, but that is part of this type of community, and can as easily pass as warm and common handshake as a mark of distinction worth the bearing. It can also be plain crap from people who would like to write but cannot or haven't tried. And again, it's that thing of, I am not worthy of this. Yeah, which I think is a completely sane response, actually. I think it's, in a way, it's kind of madder to think that you are worthy, to sort of think that you are, you know, you, you, you have got something that kind of special that distinguishes you from everyone else and hats off to people who have the self-belief to do that but actually i sort of i think you know actually most artists do walk around most creative people do walk around sort of thinking that you know they're just impersonating a talented person it's been a pleasure and an honor thank you very no, much thank for joining you us. thank you I, was, I can't think of a better way to spend uh, a october lunchtime <laughs> <laughs> been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Oswin Baker and Carla O'Shaughnessy. Our engineer has been MK Lee, and the Trapped History theme is by Pavlo Buterin. You've also heard the voices of Dennis Cambry, Chiara Carruthers, Alan Tully, Jess Fisher, and Charles Prevoice. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trapped History, please tell your friends and give us a rating, it really helps. And head over to trappedhistory.com for bonus episodes, transcripts, the Hall of Fame, and more. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Difficult talking about someone called Jackson and you're called Pete, because I'm going to start getting into Lord of the Rings mode at some point. Oh, I see, so yeah. <laughs>